Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. As I noted last week, I have put up the information about uh, the discovery of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and all of the really cool stuff about that uh, on the website. And I do hope to be putting up some new essays as time goes on. So let's start tonight by briefly checking in once again with the Hayabusa 2 space probe. So we're going to do that and then we are going to move on and we're actually going to talk about several recent archaeological discoveries. So um, that is definitely a fan favorite around here. At least I'm a fan favorite of it, Um, or I'm a fan of it, I should say. But first, Hayabusa 2. The probe is working on packing up its cargo of samples from the asteroid and getting ready to head back to Earth. JAXA, J-A-X-A, or the Japanese Space Agency, has moved to the return phase of the mission. Both photos and videos taken during the sampling suggest that the probe was indeed successful in gathering the materials. But of course, we won't know for sure until the probe returns with its precious sample canisters sometime in late 2020. Now, the probe is still working on the asteroid, but it is reaching its final phase where it will return on the 186 million mile journey back to the Earth. JAXA tweeted on Monday that the spacecraft had successfully installed the sample containers into the re-entry capsule. Now, unlike its predecessor, only the capsule will re-enter the Earth's atmosphere with the probe remaining in space and that will possibly be used in a future mission if they are able to do that. Now, currently, JAXA is negotiating with Australia to be able to land the capsule in the restricted Woomera territory, which requires special permission to be used. But I believe that they did it for the first Hayabusha, so it doesn't seem like there's going to be a huge deal with that unless some sort of weird international incident happens. Um, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. But there is paperwork. <laughs> and so before anything else happens, the probe actually will need to deploy the Minerva 2-2. It's like, it's the Minerva 2-2 lander. Because um, it's Minerva and then uh, Roman numeral II and then 2 Again, scientists are not uh, that imaginative when it comes to naming conventions. I have mentioned that many times. (laughs) And so uh, two small hopping rovers that make up the Minerva 2-1, Haibu and Owl, have already been deployed. And so this third one will be deployed in late September. And that will be the last task for the rover before it, I should say, for the probe, not the rover, for the probe before it sets off on its return to Earth. And again, fingers crossed that all will go well 
And one of the cool things about this is that we'll actually then be able to figure out if the asteroid actually does match one or more of those carbonaceous chondrite uh, meteorites that we have here on Earth that we talked about last week that it seems to be very similar to. And so actually getting material from it will allow us to directly be able to uh, compare it to those. And that would be super amazing. So hopefully everything is going to go well and those samples are going to come back and everyone is going to be super, super happy. <laughs> okay. So now, as promised, we are going to turn to archaeology and to the past in general. Uh, you know, these space probes are kind of the future. <laughs> uh, and so we're going to turn instead to the past. Um, you know, we want to stay either in the future or in the past these days. Uh, so, you know, start out in the future. Now we're heading to the past. So uh, we're going to obviously move back to Earth. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects that we haven't talked all that much about on this show, actually, which is ancient shipwrecks. I love ancient shipwrecks. Um, modern shipwrecks are pretty good, too, but... Um, Ancient shipwrecks are particularly amazing because they often have things that are preserved that are just absolutely stunning that you would never have known uh, could survive due to the various conditions in uh, the waters that they're in. If you're really lucky, uh, you get what is called anoxic water, which basically doesn't have a lot of oxygen in it. And that's really good at preservation. So like, for instance, the Baltic um, is really amazing for preservation. And they actually just real, they just uh, recently, not too uh, long ago, found a, um, a ship that went down that actually looks basically like it was like it should be on top of the water um, but it's on the bottom of um, the sea and it is actually from around the time of um, around the the end of the uh, 15th century so the 1490s something like that and so um, waiting to hear a little bit more about that and see what else they're going to find there. So maybe they'll find something cool and we'll talk about it. But um, you can definitely find articles about that. I'll try and remember to link to one um, on the Facebook for, I mean, just looking at the pictures of it. I mean, it it's a little bit kind of murky, obviously, uh, but it does almost look like it should be in a shipyard somewhere and not on the bottom of uh, the sea. So anyways, this shipwreck graveyard is a little bit older. Uh, it's been discovered in the Aegean, uh, in the Aegean Sea, near the tiny Greek island of Levitha. And so uh, ships from between the 6th century BCE and the early Christian period have been found. So the first couple of uh, centuries CE um, in the Common Era. And so around five of the ships date to the middle of the third century BCE, and they've been discovered laden down with goods, uh, as well as there's also nearby the remains of a giant granite anchor pole. Now, most of the cargo was in the form of amphorae, uh, which are those traditional uh, huge pitchers that kind of have the pointed bottoms and so they're actually meant to be shipped in ships so the ships would actually have 
uh, shelving basically that had holes in it and you would put the amphorae into them and so you could fit more of them in a ship um, they didn't have flat bottoms necessarily they had they usually had pointed bottoms and they were probably about probably about my size of probably about a little between like four and a half and five and a half feet tall maybe um, don't quote me on that offhand. I haven't seen one in a while, uh, up close. <laughs> so, um, and of course that was the main thing that, uh, was used for shipping because the main commodities were things like olive oil and wine, which were both shipped in these amphorae. And so the cargo would have originated in a variety of cities, including Kaidos, Kos, Rhodes, Phoenicia, and Carthage. Now, this is all according to the Hellenic Ministry of Culture and Sports, which apparently is in charge of uh, archaeological uh, digs and things like that. And they'll actually come back in our next story. <laughs> so uh, during this time, the region's seas would have been controlled by the Ptolemaic and Hellenistic Antigonid uh, dynasties. And of course, the, Ptolemy, the Ptolemies are, uh, they lived in Egypt. And so basically, they are descendants of Alexander the Great's general, I want to say. Um, again, don't quote me on that. But he basically installed one of his buddies as uh, the head of Egypt when he kind of came through. And so the Ptolemies, the, Ptolem the Ptolemaic dynasty flowed from that um, lineage. Now, the anchor pole most likely dates to the 6th century BCE and weighs 880 pounds. And it's actually nearly 150 feet below the water. Now, the pole is so large that the researchers think it would have belonged to a huge ship. Um, either it fell off of the ship or the ship um, you know, has disintegrated since, um, it might've just been, it might've actually limped along somewhere else and been able to, uh, be repaired or, uh, decommissioned. So the ship that it went with isn't there. It's just this huge anchor pole. Now, one of the ships found came from, uh, Nidos in what is now Turkey. And that one's also from the third century BCE. And they can usually figure these things out based on the trade goods that are in the, um, in the ship's hulls. Now, others were also found, including wrecks from the 1st and 2nd century BCE and uh, from the 2nd century CE. And so there's this great wide variety uh, from uh, Hellenistic all the way up to uh, early Christian times, like they said. And so it's great to have this kind of snapshot of all of these things going on here. Unfortunately, of course, part of the problem is that it is all underwater. Now, the shipwrecks were found and cataloged during an excavation between June 15th and 29th. And it was led by archaeologist George Kutsalafkis, uh, who is the director of the Department of Underwater Archaeological Sites, Monuments, and Research with the Aphorate of Underwater Antiquities, which is part of the Hellenistic, or Hellenic, excuse me, Ministry of Culture and Sport. Now, 
The team consisted of 47 group dives for a total of 92 hours of work below the waves. So, you know, it takes a lot of time to do this sort of thing, and it's kind of hard to navigate under the water. Sometimes there's just no visibility. Some days there's great visibility. Some days, um, you know, your uh, equipment doesn't work as well as you want it to. It's hard. Uh, <laughs> I've watched a lot of, um, you know, documentaries about this sort of thing. And I'm always amazed at how much people are able to do. Now, the find suggests that this route was heavily tra trafficked uh, from the archaic to the Ottoman period. So there would have been a lot of uh, trade goods sort of going through this route. So it would have probably been a main trading um, through fair, basically. Now, dives will actually continue around the island as well as nearby islands through 2021. So hopefully we will find some more really cool things. And of course, you know, the Greek Isles underneath the waves of the Aegean uh, around the Greek Isles are known for some pretty fantastic shipwrecks. Uh, obviously, the uh, Antikythera uh, shipwreck is the most famous. Uh, many, many amazing things have been pulled up from there. Um, a whole bunch of crazy, amazing things were pulled up just, I think, last year uh, we talked about. But of course, the most famous is the Antikythera mechanism, uh, which... Uh, despite the sort of crackpot theories about it, it was basically, as far as researchers can tell, it was basically to be able to track the movements of the sun and the moon and the planets and things like that. Um, it might have been used for making uh, astrological predictions, uh, but also astron astro <laughs> uh astrological predictions as well as astronomical predictions <laughs> um and so yeah and of course it's an amazing ridiculously cool thing but again we can really get bogged down in talking about how many uh sort of boom and bust cycles humans have gone through where things have been lost uh knowledge has been lost and then we have to eventually find it again um so it's, it's not really a great uh, thing to kind of dwell on that what if too hard, unless you're writing a novel. <laughs> okay, so let's stay in Greece for a while. And so there was another amazing discovery there recently. Uh, two ancient burial chambers that had been missed by grave robbers outside Corinth in Greece. Now, uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of uh, grave robbing in these areas because, you know, Greek uh, antiquities are extremely, uh, they're extremely in demand. And so it's very tempting for people to go out and just sort of dig in people's backyards and hope for the best. Now, miraculously, these tombs actually remained undiscovered for the past 3,400 years. Uh, again, despite the fact that there was basically there are you can see there's an aerial shot at one point and you see all these holes around it that most of them were had been looted um, and so the tombs are filled with hundreds of bones from the bronze age as well as um, many artifacts now one has two primary burials with the bones of 14 additional people who were probably moved there in ancient times 
again, according to our friends over at the Hellenic Ministry of Culture and Sports. And so the other tomb's roof was actually missing. And they actually think it must must have fallen uh, during the late Mycenaean period, somewhere between 1400 and 1200 BCE. But it still had three primary burials within. Along with the remains of the ancient Mycenaeans, there were also a treasure trove of artifacts, including figurines, clay pots, false amphoras, which are actually just jugs, <laughs> and narrow-leaved basins, as well as a bunch of small artifacts like buttons and beads. Now, the cemetery is located near the Temple of Zeus at Nemea, which is in Idonia on the Peloponnesus Peninsula. And so the site was actually first found in the 1970s, but those 20 burials found at the time had been, like I noted several times, (laughs) heavily looted. And so it's hoped that these new graves with their intact grave goods will tell us more about that period in Mycenaean civilization. Uh, especially since the tombs are very different from previously excavated burials dating from the early Mycenaean period, uh, 1600 to 1400 BCE, which contained much richer grave goods. And so while many of those were looted, one grave actually was missed. And it was actually really lucky uh, for people because it contained ancient jewelry And some of that ancient jewelry was actually able to be used uh, when some other ancient jewelry that looked uh, suspiciously like that jewelry ended up being put on sale at a New York gallery back in 1993. Uh, And so they were actually able to prove that the, uh, you know, that this jewelry was clearly looted uh, and it was eventually repatriated to Greece. Uh, and so this new dig is part of an ephorate of Antiquities of Corinth project involving an international team of archaeologists who are looking for tombs that may have been missed in earlier excavations. And so hopefully they'll find some more really cool uh, graves that have been missed and we'll find some really some other really amazing grave goods. Um yeah, I always just like to note, uh, <laughs> it's, it's you know, a controversial subject, but um, I always think it's funny because I actually see copies of them pretty much every day, but um, I'm still amazed that the Elgin marbles, uh, or the, the Greek marbles that belong on the Parthenon, uh, I should not call them the Elgin marbles because that is ridiculous, uh, that those have not been repatriated to Greece and that uh, the British Museum and uh, England still refuse to give them back. Um, in case you don't know, uh, they basically, uh, the uh, Lord Elgin uh, went to Greece when it was occupied by the Turks and bought them from the Turks. And so when the Greeks got back their own country, they said, hey, that's our patrimony, give it back. And uh, to this day, a couple hundred years from that original uh, time, they're still in the British Museum and the Greeks still really, really want them back. Um, I think that should be a condition of Brexit. (laughs) 
Um, I think they should have to give back the uh, Parthenon marbles as part of Brexit. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to one more story about ancient Greece. And so this one's actually really cool. Uh, one of the things that I really love, and I took an amazing uh, class about it back when I was in college uh, with the amazing um, professor, um, Marjorie Seneschal. I could remember her first name, but I was having trouble picking up her last. Uh, Marjorie Seneschal, who uh, hopefully some of you have met along the way because she's an amazing person. Um, and a longtime professor here in the Valley and, uh, very interested in ancient inventions. And, uh, yeah, I just, that's definitely one of those things that I love thinking about and talking about the fact that these ancient people were actually creating these amazing machines. You know, somebody had to be the first one to make a crane. Somebody had to be the first one to make a ladder even, but like things that are a little more um, ingenious than that. I'm just always like, how did, how did people figure this out? It's very cool to me to think about. And so this goes into how the Greeks built their amazing and beautiful temples. And so new research published in the annual of the British School of Athens has suggested that the builders of the first temples uh, by the Greeks, including the Temple of Isthmia and Corinth, employed an ingenious lifting machine, which was a precursor to the crane. Now, the crane was actually developed uh, by the Greeks, <laughs> most likely in the late 6th century BCE. Um, but before that, they were thought to have used rams made from earth or ramps, I should say, uh, made from earth, earth or mud brick to uh, lift heavy stone blocks, uh, pretty much the same way that the Egyptians and the Assyrians had before them, because um, that's the easiest way to do it if you don't have any tools and you don't have any incredibly ingenious inventors just sitting around, um, which the Greeks basically had around every corner. So um, at least according to uh, their writings, it seems. And so the new researchers, the new research suggests that the early lifting mechanism would have been capable of lifting ashlar blocks weighing over 440 to 880 pounds. The paper's author, Alessandro Peratini, from the University of Notre Dame, believes that this lifting machine was invented by the Corinthians, who used it to build ships and for lowering heavy, heavy sarcophagi into narrow, deep pits. Now, because the machine did not use winches or hoists, it is not a true crane. Instead, it would have used ropes passed over a frame to redirect the force. This kind of masonry represents a crucial step in the development of Greek monumental stone architecture, marking a departure both from mud brick construction, which had been the norm for most Greek buildings, and from previous experiments with stone construction, wrote Piratini in the paper. Now, he found evidence for his hypothesis in grooves etched onto the bottom of the stones used to create the temples at Corinth and Isthmia. He used a combination of scholarship and experimental archaeology to show that this machine could work with those grooves seen in the blocks. My paper re-examines the blocks from the mid-7th century temples at Corinth 
and isthmia, and their peculiar cuttings, two parallel rope grooves on their undersides and turning up on one end, he told Gizmodo. Scholars have proposed two alternative interpretations for these grooves. They served either for attaching the blocks to lifting machines or for moving blocks in the quarry. My re-examination concludes that the grooves served for lifting and testify to the first experiments with lifting architectural blocks in Greek history. And so he found that the grooves could be used for both lifting the blocks and for the important step of positioning them tightly against their neighbors. In later constructions, purpose-made holes were actually drilled used for the use of metal levers in order to move the blocks into place. But it seems that this early construction may also have used the lever for that purpose. By interpreting cuttings that have been overlooked by previous scholarship, my paper demonstrates that the builders of the early temple temples at Corinth and Ismia were already using levers for the final setting of the blocks. This represents the first documented use of the lever in Greek architecture, he notes. And so this actually puts the use of a machine to lift and place rocks as far back as the mid-7th century BCE, which is around 150 years before we believe that they transitioned to using the actual first cranes. And as I've mentioned, (laughs) the fact that cranes were used by such an early time is also an amazing testament to the ancient Greek architects. Uh, They definitely were pretty much all that they uh, were cracked up to be. They were definitely extremely um, good at creating uh, new and interesting machines and all sorts of inventions. And so, you know, I mean, it doesn't hurt that they were one of the first sort of civilizations that had uh, access, ready access to uh, leisure time for people to develop these sorts of ideas and things like that. Like, uh, you know, there are definitely earlier civilizations that created a whole bunch of other stuff. But, um, you know, today... There's plenty of people who are smart enough to create the things that the Greeks did, but unfortunately the Greeks already did it. Um, So uh, it's not that we're necessarily not as smart as they were. um, And it's not necessarily that, uh, you know, I think that it's pretty much that we're on par with them as I'm always trying to remind people. It's just the amount of cumulative knowledge that we have versus what they had and the amount of, uh, you know, sky's the limit that they had, whereas we have a lot of things that are just already there. (laughs) Okay, so let's take a break. And then we are going to move down the uh, coast a little bit. And we're going to talk about a recent find at Pompeii. So hang on for just a few moments. So we while we do some PSAs and show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, 
Don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! <coughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <coughs> Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? <coughs> Help us, sassy! <coughs> Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing for yourself and your community. Pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a... Valley Free Radio, W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton, Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. 
Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Wednesday nights, you might tune in to the warm heart of Africa to hear the funky, sinuous rhythms of Afrobeat. Or the pulse of Algerian rhyme music. Or the desert trance of Tuareg blues. Or Township Jive from Johannesburg. Or catchy Sukus beats from the Congo. Those are just a few examples of what you might hear from 7 to 9 every Wednesday night right here on Valley Free Radio. Join me, your host, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the Warm Heart of Africa, a celebration of African and Afro-diaspora music, culture, and history, delivered with a groove. And we are back. So we are going to, as I said, move down the coast to Pompeii. And of course, I assume, hopefully, everybody knows about Pompeii, a very famous place where there was a uh, huge volcanic eruption, uh, Mount Vesuvius, and uh, it erupted in 79 CE. And basically, Contrary to popular belief, and I will mention this later again, just as a reminder, uh, not everybody died, but some people unfortunately did die and their bodies were preserved as kind of voids in the uh, ash layer. And later on, people were able to go in and pour uh, cement or um, plaster into those voids and actually create casts of unfortunately the people who did not make it out of town. And so obviously uh, Pompeii has been being excavated for many, many years. Um, It has continued to be excavated. And um, so recently they found this really cool thing. And so basically it was a stash of ancient amulets and other bits and bobs. The amulets are all 
rather small, but some of them are actually very detailed. There were a variety of them uh, made from bronze, bone, amber, and glass. They include a glass engraving of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, fertility, and religious ecstasy, an engraving of a dancing satyr, a skull, uh, several phalluses, uh, several scarabs, and uh, Harpocrates, the deity of silence and secrets, <laughs> according to the archaeological park of Pompeii, uh, who is in charge of the digs there and who made the finding. Now, they were most likely collected and used by a woman, either as jewelry or more likely as talisman against bad luck. Now, uh, she may even have been a sort of sorceress, uh, as many stories have suggested. Uh, you know, obviously not a real sorceress, but might have considered herself to have a little bit of power. Um, but she might also just have been someone who was really afraid of things and just wanted to have all of these talismans. Um, obviously, we can't know for certain. Uh, Massimo Osana, the general director at the Archaeological Park of Pompeii, notes that most likely the amulets were to wear on ritualistic occasions rather than as a show of elegance. Now, the objects were found in the House of the Garden in the remains of a wooden box in one of the rooms of the house. Now, the wood from the box had disintegrated in the last 2,000 years, but a cast of the shape, again, uh, was left by volcanic materials along with the box's bronze hinges. Now, also found were two mirrors, pieces of a necklace, glazed ceramic ornaments, a collection of beads, a human figure, and a handful of gems, including a pure amethyst with a female figure, and a red carnelian with a craftsman figure. Uh, and so the carvings were detailed and suggest that they would have been uh, rather expensive to buy. However, um, there's also some evidence to suggest that the person who owned them wasn't all that wealthy. Now, the talisman's symbolism, including that of the phalluses, scarab beetles, and skull, is currently under an investigation, obviously, uh, to be able to sort of figure out how they fit into the society and their meaning and function, according to Osana. They are objects of everyday life in the female world and are extraordinary because they tell micro-stories, biographies of the inhabitants of the city who tried to escape the eruption, he notes. Now, again, Though the majority of those in Pompeii did actually survive, uh, many actually resettled in nearby towns, uh, it's unclear whether the woman who owned the box was among them. In the same house, we discovered a room with 10 victims, including women and children. And now we are trying to establish kinship relationships thanks to DNA analysis, Osana said. Perhaps the precious box belonged to one of these victims. Interesting is the iconography of objects and amulets, which invoke fortune, fertility, and protection against bad luck, um, obviously. And of course, that points to another important thing is that not all of um, the victims were um, completely uh, 
that you know some victims are actually still represented by skeletal remains um there are some where it's mostly just the void but in other parts there are actually skeletal remains still existing now osana suggests further that the box most likely actually belonged to a servant or slave mostly because of the lack of items that were gold uh, gold was the preferred precious metal for uh, the elite of Pompeii. And so to not have any gold in there just seems to suggest that it wasn't for uh, the wealthy uh, wife of the uh, man who owned the villa necessarily. And uh, excavations at Pompeii are continuing, obviously, as noted. And so other recent finds include a Thermop, thermopolium, <laughs> thermopolium, there we go, uh, which would have been the Roman equivalent of a fast food restaurant and an ancient fresco of Narcissus. Um, and so I have linked to a page where you can see several photos of the amazing stash. Um, just really beautiful, beautiful things. And again, it comes back to that uh, reminder to people that our ancient people were just as smart, just as good at craftsmanship as people are today, especially with those sorts of jewelry craftsmanship. Um, most of that is still done today, a lot of it by hand, by craftsmen. And so it is definitely important to remember that these people were making things that uh, minus the iconography, if you cleaned up some of it, uh, you could put it out on a table with things that were created by uh, 21st century jewelers. And uh, you probably would have a hard time in some cases figuring out which was which. Um, I always think of the famous picture of um, uh, Schliemann's wife, uh, Heinrich Schliemann's wife wearing all of these gold pieces from um, one of the iterations of Troy, not the one he was looking for, um, but one of the uh, one of the layers, one of the many uh, Troys that existed over the centuries. And, um, you know, that jewelry looks like it could have been right out of a catalog from the 1920s. Um, and so it's always really interesting to me to just keep remembering about this sort of thing. It's why I love archaeology, because um, I'm always fascinated by the connections between the past and the present in that way of how sort of everything new is old again, um, or everything old is new again, I should say. <laughs> um, okay, so let's keep going on, though. Uh, and so over in England, uh, we're going to move over there, but we're going to stay in Roman times. And so an announcement has been made just uh, either yesterday or today uh, that a fourth century Roman mosaic measuring over 20 feet has been finished. It's been fully uncovered, uh, washed and uh cleaned with toothbrushes and it's beautiful and it's going to be available to see tomorrow <laughs> in England unfortunately uh, it's been uncovered in a West Berkshire village uh, the village of Boxford and so it's just 
one, it's one of just three known mosaics in this particular style, uh, basically throughout the entire world, according to Anthony Beeson, an expert on Rome, on Roman and Greek art and architecture. Now, the mosaic was actually first discovered back in August of 2017, and that, uh, at first, they were able to uncover half of it, and then they kind of had to put it back as it was and wait until they had more money and another grant to be able to go out and actually get the other half as well. And so it shows a mythical chariot race for the hands of a princess, most likely the mythical Greek story of Pelos, or Pelops, I should say. Beeson notes that, the pavement shows Bellephoron and Pegasus, but the main action is the story of Pelops and his race to win the hand of the princess Hippodamia. The king, Onamaus, uh, having been told that his future son-in-law would bring about his death, made all contestants race him in a chariot, but handicapped them by putting the princess in the vehicle with them. The losers were decapitated and their heads displayed. Pelops persuaded a former lover, Myrtilus, and the king's chariot master to substitute a wax linchpin, and so the king was killed when the wheels flew off. Pelops thereby won, but killed Myrtilus, who cursed his lineage and brought about the curse of the Pelops. The king's funerary games are said to be the origins of the Olympics. <laughs> so yes, um, and actually, it's really interesting. They specifically said that, you know, he had been kind of uh, supervising and trying to interpret as they were, were revealing it. And when he saw the linchpin in the mosaic, that was when he knew what he was looking at, because um, he actually saw the linchpin depicted in the mosaic itself, which I think is really cool. Uh, now, as I noticed, as I noted, it's not going to be available for very long. Uh, they spent nine days uncovering this amazing find, uh, scrubbing it down. There's lots of pictures of them with toothbrushes and things like that. Um, and it will be open to the public tomorrow, but then will be carefully reburied because unfortunately the find is on private arable farming land. Uh, archaeologist Matt Nickel, who worked on the dig, said, It's been quite overwhelming, not just for me, but for everyone involved. There's a real buzz and excitement on this project. I've never seen that before on any project that I've worked on. Now, the Uncovery was part of a project that started again back in 2015 by the Boxford History Project, the Berkshire Archaeology Research Group, and, the Cotsw and Cotswold Archaeology. Now, three closely linked Roman sites were investigated. The researchers followed clues from a 19th century drainage project that unfortunately went through the site and disturbed some of the site, including some of the mosaic and surrounding areas. Now, there were other findings, uh, including a brick that shows uh, hobnail imprints from a shoe, a delicate ring, again, something very... Uh, you could totally pick it out of a jewelry case anytime uh, in the present. 
a hook or earring made of copper. Um, and so it could have either been a hook or an earring, but because it's made of copper, they think it probably was an earring um, because that was a metal that was used for uh, jewelry. And um, a small metal hoard that includes at least a couple of Roman coins. It's kind of uh, often those are sort of conglomerations so that it'll take some time to actually uh, pull everything apart and see what's in there. But um, yeah, I just think very cool. And I know it's a shame that like it's going to be beautiful and wonderful and able to be seen by everybody for one day and then it's going to be covered over. But, you know, sometimes that's for the best, uh, especially now that hopefully people will know where it is and uh, they will continue to uh, preserve its location so that nothing else goes through there. Uh, no uh, roadways or uh, no more drainage pipes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in England, that's kind of where how a lot of things have been discovered over the years. Um, you know, here in America, we have a lot less uh, sort of layers of past that are easily discoverable, um, because a lot of Native American remains were more ephemeral. And so uh, they weren't building big uh, villas or anything like that that we can find. Um, though, I mean, that doesn't mean that they weren't doing things. And so, um, as you may know, there is the Hopewell people who lived in the center of the um, country, and they created these amazing mounds. And um, so, they actually really did create amazing um, monumental archaeology. And we don't really think about it that way anymore because, again, they created these mounds and then they built sort of uh, wood and straw uh, dwellings on top of the mounds. And, of course, a lot of the mounds were actually excavated in the 1800s, by which I mean they were pulled apart and whatever was in them that looked even vaguely valuable was sold off. Uh, some of them were dynamited. Some of them were simply plowed over because somebody wanted to use that land as a field. Um, and so that is, of course, very distressing. But um, we definitely had people in the um, in North America that we're building things. Um, you know, there's the Pueblos uh, in uh, the, the Southwest and things like that. You know, it's not as if there weren't amazing things going on here, um, but much more our cultural, uh, the culture of the Americas um, was in ephemeral things. Um, and so, you know, obviously there are archaeological excavations all over the country um, and people do find things, but not in the way that they do in places like England and Europe where, um, you know, in Italy, people are constantly, uh, you know, they're plowing their field and they fall into a burial chamber. <laughs> and uh, in England, you know, uh, someone, there was a story about how someone had lost his hammer and so he took out his metal detector and was uh, metal detecting to find his hammer. And it turned out that he found the greatest uh, hoard of um, uh, Roman era uh, 
metal of coins and all sorts of other um, ornaments and things like that that was in this huge hoard. And he found it because he was looking for his hammer in the field. Um, And so uh, it's just, it's a different kind of experience there. Um, And yeah, and so it's, it's a little bit interesting to kind of compare that to here where, um, you know, especially in places like uh, the Northeast, there's been a lot of continuous settlement of people who are not Native and who uh, weren't terribly respectful of Native remains, just to, you know, sort of put it out there. Um, and so unfortunately, uh, a lot of that has been lost. Um, but, you know, the Hopewell especially were these really amazing people and, um, they used all sorts of precious materials. They had all sorts of trade routes going with people in the Southwest, uh, which had connections to people in Central and South America. Um, you know, it wasn't just that there were a bunch of people sitting around campfires in um, the Americas while, you know, England and Europe were fl- flourishing with huge um cities and things like that. And in fact, um, the one, the last story I wanted to talk about tonight is about two major volcanic eruptions that affected people both in Europe and in the Americas. And so in the sixth century CE, it's, it's known that this was, this was kind of a bad time for people. Uh, there were lower than average temperatures in the Northern hemisphere, and it made life in Europe pretty terrible. Uh, crop failures, famine, and there's a suggestion that this may even have triggered the plague of Justinian, which was a major outbreak of the bubonic plague. And so researchers had suspected and now have good evidence to support that this climactic turndown, downturn, excuse me, was caused by two major volcanic eruptions. One was in 536 CE and the other around 540 CE. The first is thought to have happened in Iceland or North America, but the second had remained a mystery until now. Researchers studying ancient volcanic debris from El Salvador's Ilopango volcano have known for some time um, that somewhere between the 3rd and 6th centuries, there was a massive explosion. There's even been a label for it. It's called Tierra Blanca Joven, or TBJ which translates to white young earth because it sent a volcanic plume over 30 miles into the atmosphere, blanketing the area with volcanic ash. Deposits are found in Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and the Pacific Ocean, and centimeter thick across El Salvador, according to the paper published in the Journal of Volcanology and Geothermal Research, which is based on their initial results and confirmed eight distinct layers from the volcanic eruption, which would have lasted uh, between a few days and a few weeks. And so then in order to better define just when the eruption happened, the researchers then collected slices from three tree trunks embedded in the ash from the lake that now covers the volcano's caldera. The tropical hardwood trees most likely would have been engulfed in a pyroclastic flow and thus died very quickly after the eruption. 
Now, just for a sort of comparison, the pyroclastic flow has been estimated to be around 120 times greater than that from the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. So they used both dendrochronology, basically counting the tree rings, as well as carbon-14 dating to estimate an age for the eruption. The trees all died between 500 and 545 CE, which is within the range for the second eruption, according to a second study published in Quaternary Science Reviews. They actually suspect that they can pinpoint the date to the fall of 539 CE, based on atmospheric circulation patterns. And this also tells them a lot about what was happening in the Maya world. So basically, the Maya have this very distinct era where they stopped finding uh, Mayan ruins. Um, They found stopped having Mayan um, monuments. And this is actually uh, was probably caused because everything ended up being under ash. (laughs) Um, And so uh, we do have to wrap up tonight. But we'll talk about that uh, a little in a little more detail uh, at the top of next week. So do stay tuned for civil politics and have a great week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.